0: Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland. I'm a professor at York University in Toronto. This is a new series we're moving on to now within the podcast. Previously, we've dealt first with Paul and his communities, delving into the variety of Christianity reflected there. We then moved on to the Gospels, the Gospels as by ancient biographies that portray Jesus in particular ways, and we looked at how these portraits of Jesus help us to understand the communities behind them. Now we move on to the series Diversity in Early Christianity with a focus on what has traditionally been called heresies. We're going to be looking at the variety of groups that we find within literature that are quite often attacked and marginalized within Christianity. As historians, we're interested in trying to understand what these other Christian groups were all about what their beliefs and practices were. We are not interested in condemning the groups we're looking at. We are more interested in understanding them as historical phenomena in the first, second, and third centuries. So in a sense, this particular podcast, I would warn, is quite advanced. And there's a sense in which you would be better off listening to the first two series in the podcast on Paul and then Jesus, before turning to this more in-depth, more sophisticated, you could say, look at a variety of different Christian groups we encounter in early Christian literature. Nonetheless, you may survive and may be able to follow it, even if you haven't listened to those ones, but it's a bit of a warning of the advanced nature of what we're dealing with here. This is the first episode in this series on diversity in early Christianity that looks at the heresies and the struggles between different forms of Christianity in the late first, and especially in the second and third centuries. We begin with two case studies. We look at the opponents attacked within the Johannine literature, within first, second, and third John. We then move on to a second case study of Ignatius and look at the opponents of Ignatius, once again, other followers of Jesus that Ignatius opposes and disagrees with. And we're trying to get into understanding who these opponents are, what their beliefs and practices are, and what sort of dynamic we're seeing in the struggle between different types of Christianity, in this case, in the late 1st and early 2nd century. Just to give you a sense of what direction we had in subsequent episodes of the podcast, we then move on to the evidence we find in other literature of the 2nd and 3rd centuries. And so we introduce the Nag Hammadi writings, the New Testament apocrypha, and other patristic sources that provide us glimpses into the variety of different Christian groups that existed in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, and the struggles that were going on among them. After we've introduced those writings, we then delve into them, and try and see and plot out the different types of Christianity reflected there. We begin with Judean forms of Christianity, including the Ebionites, before moving on to Marcion and the followers of Marcion, who had quite a different tack on things than the Ebionites had. Finally, we delve into a variety of phenomena that have been traditionally labeled Gnosticism. However, this broad category of Gnosticism actually envelops a whole range of types of Christianity, that we'll be able to get better sense of by analyzing closely some of the traditionally called Gnostic writings that we find in collections like the Nag Hammadi Library. So that just gives you a quick glimpse ahead into the variety of different Christian groups that we'll be looking at in the entire series. But today's episode just begins to introduce the concept of heresy and the issue of how to look at, as historians, how to look at these different groups that are opposed by particular Christians in the early centuries, groups that are traditionally labeled heresies. After we introduce some of these key concepts about diversity in early Christianity and the contributions of a particular scholar, Walter Bauer, to studying the diversity of Christianity, we then begin to introduce 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and try and get into what type of Christianity is reflected in the Johannine epistles. This then sets the stage for the next episode, which delves into the opponents, the people who John the Elder opposes in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, that provide us an important and interesting glimpse into a schism that took place within the Joannine community in the late 1st or early 2nd century. So I hope you enjoy the entire series and that you enjoy this first of a good number of episodes that we'll be looking at and plotting out the different types of Christianity we find in various parts of the Roman Empire. If you're interested in reading further on the variety of Christian groups that existed in the first centuries, or even as a basis on which to better understand the current podcast, I would recommend that you read Bart Ehrman's Lost Christianities. The subtitle is The Battles for Scripture and the Faiths We Never Knew although I do not agree with every aspect of this book, it does provide a very good overview and survey of some of the main types of Christianity we'll be touching on in this current podcast. You may also want to browse my website philipharlan.com, where you can read quite a bit about a variety of different Christian groups including the ones that are dealt with in this series. What I'm going to do in the next couple of discussions is use the Johannine epistles and Ignatius's epistles as an opportunity to flesh out some more about the diversity of early Christianity. In particular, I'm going to use them as an avenue into finding opponents in the literature as a way of looking into some other forms of Christianity. The author of John's epistles and the author of Ignatius' epistles have a certain way of understanding what Christianity is in terms of both belief and practice. And that differs from what some other followers of Jesus think. In the process of writing their letters, they're combating rhetorically these other followers of Jesus. So this gives an especially good opportunity to ask the question of what were those other forms of Christianity? what can we know about the opponents that are attacked within literature? What does that tell us about the diversity of early Christianity and the variety that exists among different groups of Jesus followers? In the process, really, what we're looking at is what is traditionally called heresies. So within subsequent history of Christianity, when you get into the second and third and fourth centuries especially, there develops a particular terminology that is used to label someone else as an outsider, even if they're claiming to be a follower of Jesus. So you're a Jesus follower, and you're talking about another Jesus follower, but you disagree with them. So that one Christian author will label someone a heretic, will say that that form of Christianity is a heresy. Heresy is relative, isn't it? What one follower of Jesus calls heresy will be someone else's orthodoxy, even though they won't in the first century use that term. So it's a name calling sort of categorization. The term heresy is value judgment loaded. We wanna get a sense of what each of these groups is like and not judge them as already wrong or insignificant or that they're not worth looking at. They do get marginalized. They do get left out in the process that develops into what ends up becoming called orthodoxy. But in reality, it's a very long process that leads to that. And so to some degree, we'll get into that in the discussion of these letters. So that's the main point I want to get into, is this diversity of early Christianity. The picture we've got from our discussion of Paul of a diversity of Jesus groups, that picture of diversity is one that's more of a modern scholarly opinion about how to look at the history of early Christianity. That opinion is that Christianity was diverse from the beginning. That there was no one orthodoxy from which heresies deviated. So that historiographical opinion that says there was diversity from the get-go. That opinion is the opinion of a scholar named Walter Bauer. Walter Bauer writes in the 1930s as a German scholar. Orthodoxy and heresy in early Christianity. It didn't have much of an impact in in the 1930s. It began to have an impact once it was translated into English in 1970. But let me say who Walter Bauer was arguing against. What Walter Bauer was arguing against was the traditional historiographical understanding of the diversity of early Christianity. One of the first historians of early Christianity was Eusebius. Eusebius is a guy writing in the early 300 CE after Constantine has made Christianity the official imperial religion. He writes his ecclesiastical history, his church history, right up to the beginning of Christianity. And within those writings, he incorporates a theory regarding heresies. And the theory is this, orthodoxy and unity first, diversity and heresy later, losing out, and unity and orthodoxy triumphing. This is obviously a value judgment loaded historiography. We're talking about an ancient historian writing in the 300s who's openly advocating in his understandings of the things he's talking about. So, the theory of Eusebius about... The uh, nature of early Christianity and the nature of heresies is that unity in orthodoxy first, diversity in heresies later. And he has a specific theory that times it after the time of the apostles' death that heresy arose. In other words, towards the end of the first century. And he's dependent on another historian, Hegesippus, lived in the 200s. His writings have not survived to us. Instead, like a lot of early Christian writings, they survive in quotations of other people. Eusebius is quoting Hegesippus. In addition to these things, while recounting the events of that period, records that the church up to that time had remained a pure and uncorrupted virgin. Since, if there are any that attempted to corrupt the sound norm of the preaching of salvation, they lay until then concealed in the obscure darkness. But when the sacred college of apostles had suffered death in various forms, late first century, and the generation of those that had been deemed worthy to hear the inspired wisdom with their own ears had passed away, then the league of godless error took its rise as a result of the folly of heretical teachers who, because none of the apostles was still living, attempted henceforth with a bold face to proclaim in opposition to the preaching of the truth the knowledge which is falsely so-called. He's alluding there to Gnosticism. Here we have it then. This is the picture that was the standard picture until Walter Bauer's book became adopted within the study of early Christianity. Sure, there were more sophisticated approaches that didn't quite take it hook, line, and sinker, but this is the traditional view of the origins of heresy, namely orthodoxy, truth there from the beginning all the way to the end of the first century. Then, after the apostles dying, divergences occurring and heretics trying to start their own thing and doing things differently. This is the traditional picture, which even from what we learned about Paul, we know doesn't work. Let me read another passage regarding this uh, perspective here, also from Eusebius. Just before we move on to the the view we're we're taking and, and then how this all fits into it. Here's another quote that'll give a sense of how heresy is viewed by a historian in the 300 CE. As the churches throughout the world were now shining like the most brilliant stars and faith in our savior and Lord Jesus Christ was flourishing among the whole human race, the demon who hates everything that is good and is always hostile to the truth and most bitterly opposed to salvation of man turned all his arts against the church. So the explanation is Satan caused heresy, caused diversity. In the beginning, he armed himself against it with external persecutions. But now, being shut off from the use of such means, he devised all sorts of plans and employed other methods in his conflict with the church, using base and deceitful men as instruments for the ruin of souls and as ministers of destruction. Instigated by him, impostors and deceivers, assuming the name of our religion, brought to the depth of ruin such of the believers as they could win over. And at the same time, by means of the deeds which they practiced, turned away from the path which leads to the word of salvation. Notice the language here. People who have different views are imposters and deceivers who assume the name of our religion. This is in hindsight. We're talking in the 300s when there already has been the emergence of what will become orthodoxy and where the views within previous Christianity that were different have already been pushed to the side. Where the view is that Christianity was one, perfect thing in the beginning that was every Christian agreed on everything, and that only later heresy came in through the work of Satan, and the diversity was later and was Satan's work. When you read Paul's letters, you already know that's not history when you study it the way we did. Walter Bauer learned that insight not by investigating Paul's letters extensively, but through a region-by-region study of Christianity. And What Walter Bauer argued, even though we need to even qualify it to some degree, was the traditional model of Eusebius, which was orthodoxy first, heresy later, should be turned on its head. So Walter Bauer argued heresy first, orthodoxy later, heresies first, orthodoxy later. So that's the main argument, oversimplified, of Walter Bauer in that book that he wrote in the 1930s and that came to impact the study of early Christianity, especially since the 1970s. And that is the sort of model that I use or that I'm influenced by and the way that I approach early Christianity. And so what he did is go region by region. And when he went to each region, he said, what is my earliest evidence for followers of Jesus in this region? And what do they believe and, and practice? What he found was that the earliest evidence you find in Egypt, the earliest evidence you find in Mesopotamia, even the earliest evidence you find in Asia Minor, although that's a little less strong evidence, you already see what later gets categorized as heresy as the first thing you see. But the main point is this argument about heresies first, orthodoxy later. In a qualified way, this has become the argument of people like me and other scholars within early Christianity that acknowledge the diversity of early Christianity and study it and try and understand then and ask the question, okay, we know it's diverse at the beginning, let's try and plot out and see what is the diversity? What do different followers of Jesus think and do? How do they differ from one another? How are they interacting with one another? Do they disagree with one another? Do they openly attack one another? Are they sort of living just unknowing of each other's differences of opinion, etc. And so in this view, orthodoxy is a long process whereby certain followers of Jesus gradually define their own beliefs and practices as the true belief and practice over against others who have the false belief and practice and that some of those who define things that way gradually get the ability and the authority to be able to close out the other forms of Christianity, namely what they would label heresies, but what we know are simply other forms of Christianity. So let's look at John's epistles now and look at the types of Christianity that are reflected there, both the type of Christianity of the author and the type of Christianity of the people he disagrees with. And this will give us a glimpse into the diverse forms of Christianity. And again, the opponents are uh, what, what the author, if they had the term already, it's not developed yet, would call heresies. But maybe the opponents would call John the Elder a heretic. Let's talk about introductory matters first, though, about John's epistles and introduce a few things about it before we get into the opponents that this author attacks. First, second, and third John have been grouped together in the way that they're presented to us in the New Testament. However, what's interesting about them is 1st John is not an epistle and 2nd and 3rd John are epistles, are letters. So we have two different genres here. 1st John is not an epistle. It's not clear exactly what genre it is. Maybe a rough way of putting it, since we don't have a clear sense or clear category to put it, is a tractate. Nonetheless, despite the fact that it's a tractate, it seems to be dressing a very specific situation in a way that is like what you encounter in letters. Namely, you can actually read 1 John and see evidence of a community there and see evidence of what the author is combating and see evidence of other followers of Jesus who differ from the author. That 1 John doesn't lay, say who it's written by at all, never says who the author is. In both Second and 3 John, it just simply says from the elder, the elder, the presbyter. There are stories about a particular elder, a particular presbyter in Western Asia Minor known as John the Elder, who is a teacher of someone you've come across before. His claims to have learned things from John the Elder in Western Asia Minor. Most scholars suggest this as the most likely candidate for who the elder is here. We may well have these first, second, and third John reflecting Western Asia Minor. It's not certain. But what will be interesting to note is, once we get to Ignatius' epistles, which are definitely addressing Asia Minor, we'll see very similar things going on in the opponents who are attacked. The recipients of the letter, in 2 John, it's the elect lady, because it's a letter from the elder to the elect lady. And the Third John is a letter from the elder to Gaius. Very short letter. Now, what scholars have noticed, and what scholars have developed the concept of, is Johannine Christianity. The notion that we have a variety of writings in early Christianity that have such close affinities among them that it suggests that it's a common community or group of communities that are using them. And they've labeled that community the Johannine school or the Johannine community, changing John into an adjective, right? Johannine. The reason for this is first, second, and third John and the Gospel of John have a whole lot in common in terms of concepts, in terms of how they explain what's important in following Jesus, in terms of the main terms they use. Even their view of Jesus seems to have an affinity, a very close affinity. In other words, the Johannine epistles we're looking at today and the Gospel of John have a lot in common, so much so that scholars talk about them together as a type of Christianity, Johannine Christianity. Let's look at some of the common themes in the Johannine epistles that are common to both them and the Gospel of John that lead scholars to this sort of uh, suggestions. First of all, both the Gospel of John and the epistles of this elder, who's not to be confused with the disciple John, John the son of Zebedee. And even with the Gospel of John, we've already learned that it's not by John the son of Zebedee, even though tradition attaches that and amalgamates them all together and says their tradition says these epistles and the Gospel of John are written by John, the Son of Zebedee, later tradition. We, we already know there's difficulties with that. What is common to both the epistles and to Gospel of John, first of all, is Christology. We know now that we've studied the various portraits of Jesus in Mark, Matthew, Luke and John. We already know now that it's not standard, necessarily, to have a threefold understanding of the, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit as your main way of talking. It's not standard. It only becomes standard after the councils way later in the 300 CE that used the Gospel of John as their model. Instead, there's diversity in how God is explained and how Jesus is explained in relation to God. There's diversity in each of those Gospel understandings and therefore in each of the communities from which those Gospels come. But what the Epistles of John and the Gospel of John share in common is something that's not characteristic of the other ones, namely the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit the three together being the main way in which the authors talk. Not only that, but a high Christology for Jesus. In fact, we're going to soon see that the opponents of John the Elder have a higher Christology than John the Elder does. Maybe they would say John the Elder was a heretic for not having a high enough Christology. We know that the Gospel of John has a very high Christology. The whole thing opens with what you studied. In the beginning was the Logos, was the utterance was the reason of God expressed in oral form. And that word was there in creation, and that word helped to affect creation. So that whole picture, very high Christology. Yet the Gospel of John also has a human Jesus in the sense that when Jesus is stabbed on the cross, water and blood comes out. And that's one of the supposed traditions that goes back to the beloved disciple that they they claim to have links with. So even though the Gospel of John has a very high Christology, it also has to some degree a human Jesus the highest Christology of all the Gospels and yet somehow still a human Jesus remember that high Christology goes along with a more divine Jesus and low Christology goes along with a more fleshly human Jesus but what's clear is the Johannine epistles and John's gospel have in common the high Christology the opponents have an even higher one than, than the than the elder does So we're within a certain type of Christianity, Joannine Christianity, but even within Joannine Christianity, you have diversity, you have schisms, you have differences of opinion, even within this brand of Christianity, let alone differences of opinion between Joannine Christianity and Pauline Christianity, which you definitely will have. But even within Joannine Christianity, you have diversity uh, and differences of opinion. But there's a commonality among all the Joannine community groups of a high Christology. They all share that, The only question is how high and how they configure their high Christology. That's where the differences come in, and that's where the opponents come in. Another set of ideas that you come across in the epistles that's also in John and therefore shows you the close connection between them are terms like this. Word, life, truth, knowledge, light and darkness. These concepts saturate the Johannine epistles and saturate John's gospel Maybe the clincher on this thing about there being a very close association between the epistles and John's gospel that suggests a joanine community, the clincher in a way is the main commandment that is taught that was very specific to John's gospel. Remember in the final supper that Jesus has with his disciples, he washes their feet and all that sort of thing, and he does his last discourse with them where he explains the whole Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the context of that, Jesus teaches what he says is the most important commandment. A new commandment, he calls it. Love one another. So in the final discourse of Jesus in the Gospel of John, love one another is stated as the main commandment. It's also characteristic of the epistles of John, who likewise explicitly label it that, the new commandment of love. These Jesus followers that are being written to by John the Elder, and John the Elder himself, use the Gospel of John are very familiar with the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is their key for interpreting Jesus, is their key for understanding what it means to be a Jesus follower. Even the opponents of John the Elder share in common a use of John's Gospel, and using it as the interpretive key to understanding what it means to follow Jesus. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharland.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this podcast is Shadow Dance by Cave, and it's used here with permission under a Creative Commons license.